day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at the University of Exeter. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we are discussing the Cold War as history. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what do we mean exactly by the term the Cold War? I think that's a really good question to start on, Charles. The conventional account is to begin it after World War II and to focus on the confrontation between an American-led bloc and the uh, communist bloc led by the Soviet Union. Uh, I tried in my book, The Cold War, um, which came out with Bloomsbury a few years ago, to argue that in practical terms, the Cold War actually began with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. And uh, therefore, uh, the, what you really saw in after World War II is a resumption of the hostility that had earlier existed. What, if any, precursors to the Cold War were there? Was the so-called great game between the uh, United Kingdom and Tsarist Russia in the pre-1914 period uh, could be said to be a precursor of the Cold War? Well, it certainly was in geopolitical terms. Yes, you're absolutely right. And with many of the same areas of confrontation, Uh, the Manchuria Korea, for example, area which had been seen confrontation between Russia and Britain's ally, uh, Japan being one such area, the um, the Russian determination to advance towards India was to be replicated during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, etc., etc. But in ideological terms, Bolshevism was very different, and there the closest ideological parallel would probably be uh, the French revolutionaries in, their, in the 1790s, because unlike the American revolutionaries who, while proclaiming universal values in the, with Thomas Jefferson, had in fact not really tried to export their revolution, the French revolutionaries believed that their revolution was appropriate for all of mankind. In fact, there was a debate in which somebody asked whether this was applicable also to Madagascar. They were trying to offer prudence, and uh, they were told very firmly, yes, um, So the French revolutionaries who had a similar, um, if you like, sort of secular millenarian fantasy of restarting time, similarly wanted to destroy religion, similarly wanted to destroy the existing society, and similarly believed that it would be possible across the world to create um, sort of uh, allied republican states of their kind of primitive virtue. I would say that's the closest comparison. Would you say then that the Cold War commenced with the October Revolution or with the uh, subsequent Western military intervention uh, on behalf of the the white forces, the anti-revolutionary forces in the Russian uh, Civil War? Well, the October Revolution very much began a process of violence and conflict. 
and triggered a civil war. The particular anxiety for the uh, Western powers is that, of course, the communists um, sort of signed a treaty, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, with uh, the Germans. And indeed, that, in a sense, is the trigger of Western concern. And it's worth bearing in mind that you see subsequently uh, links between uh, the Germans and the um, Soviet communists in the 1920s with secret rearmament by both sides. And that really, in some respects, the Hitler-Stalin pact of 1939 to 1941 is the apogee of this because both Hitler and Stalin, um, although ideologically opposed to each other, they also shared a common antipathy towards uh, Western liberal democracy. After the various uh, attempts at uh, implanting revolution in uh, Western and Central Europe, mostly Central Europe, uh, after 1918 up to 1923, would it be correct to say that the Cold War goes into hibernation, at least in terms of uh, Europe, after that date? Yes, I think to a considerable extent. I mean, what had happened was, as you correctly say, that there is attempts uh, both uh, by uh, territorial conquest of advancing Soviet forces, most obviously the attempt to conquer Poland, and also insurrectionary movements, most obviously in Hungary and Germany. There are attempts to expand uh, communism very rapidly. Uh, there is then a successful process of containment by Western forces and a kind of creation of a barrière de l'Est. Um, and during that period, uh, problems continue with the Soviet Union, active, um, active subversion, uh, which leads, of course, to, in a sense, an intelligence war, which leads to periodic breakages in dif diplomatic relations. Um, but in terms of full-scale conflict, uh, the Soviet Union does not follow that policy in Europe um, in the late 20s and 30s until 1939, when it joins Hitler in attack in Poland. Would it be correct to say that um, the outcome of the Second World War made the resumption of the Cold War inevitable? Well, I think that that's a very interesting point. I mean, I, in many senses, I don't think the Cold War had ever really stopped for Stalin. Um, there had been, uh, as you will know, in the 30s, the expedient of Popular Front alliances with socialists. Um, and in, to a certain extent, the uh, alliance against Hitler from the Soviet point of view falls into the same process of expediency. And of course, there are large scale intelligence operations against both Britain and the United States. And there is also, and this is much less clear, the extent to which the uh, Soviet uh, diplomatic um, discussions with Nazi Germany during 1942 and 43 um, might well have led to some sort of uh, intention of having, as it were, the Germans and the Western powers fight each other and leave the Soviets even more potent. So I think it's fair to say that for the Soviets, um, the Cold War continues. And, and obviously, this is an approach which is very different to the 
approach which you saw uh, very strongly developed in the United States and indeed to a certain extent in Britain in which historians endlessly berated the Western powers for um, supposedly kicking off the Cold War. Um, well, all I can say is if you're looking at that from the perspective of Tallinn or Riga, Vilnius, uh, Warsaw, etc., it doesn't look like that. As far as you're concerned, uh, the Soviet Union um, and Soviet forces were uh, already very much pursuing anti-Western, anti-liberal, anti-capitalist, anti-democratic processes, both during the war and uh, immediately after it, irrespective of what the West did. So you don't have, you don't believe there's much purchase in the argument that it was Western uh, over responses to Soviet policies post 1945, which resulted in the Cold War. No, I'm afraid to say, I think that is, in my view, a flawed interpretation. It's one that doesn't bear much relationship to Soviet strategic culture. It doesn't bear much relationship to Stalin's views on geopolitics and on, as it were, the historical destiny of conflict. Um, and I have to tell you, I also think that in some, though not all cases, it tells you more about the political location of the scholars advancing those opinions than it does about the situation at the time. Would you agree with... Um the supposition that uh, the first phase of the Cold War, beginning in 45 up to or 47, however you like, uh, up to the mid 1950s, was mostly a Eurocentric phenomenon with only limited application outside of Europe. Obviously, um, there was a war in Korea, there was the Chinese Civil War, subsequent revolution. But for the most part, the Cold War up to the mid-1950s was mostly a Eurocentric um, event. Well, I'm afraid, Charles, I'm going to disagree with you there. <laughs> Not only my own book on the Cold War, but my own book on um, you know, uh, the, as it were, the critique of the Paul Kennedy book, the one I wrote on the rise and fall of the great powers. No, I don't think that. I think that, in a sense, um, war was really hot in Asia as a pretty continuous process. Uh, right through into the mid-1970s. And in fact, if you wish to include the Chinese-Vietnamese War, you'd actually go into the end of the 70s. Um, and I would say that possibly what we need is an interpretation of uh, that period, which puts more of an accent on uh, the conflicts in East Asia, and not in any way to downplay the traditional emphasis on, as it were, the you know the Berlin-centered account of the Cold War, but simply to argue that that is a overly limited account. Now, the hilarious thing to just loop into another controversy here is what I'm talking about is world history, which has always been my approach, and it's one of the reasons why I think those at the present moment who are endorsing or expounding theses of decolonizing the curriculum are absolutely ludicrous because the practicality is that's happened with world historians. For decades. And in the case of the Cold War, um, the world historical approach, in my view, would be to put much more of an emphasis on what happened in China. And indeed, it's interesting that when we were talking earlier 
And you correctly said that in Europe, uh, fighting was um, really ended uh, in the early 1920s. As you will know, uh, in the case of China, uh, the northern expedition of Chiang Kai-shek um, was initially with the support of the Soviet Union. It was designed to overthrow uh, pro-British interests in China, and the communists were ordered to support the Kuomintang. Uh, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek became increasingly suspicious of the of the uh, communists, and large-scale fighting began in the late 1920s. And if you're looking at communist troops fighting anti-communist troops in their hundreds of thousands, you would be looking at the early 1930s uh, and not in uh, what was going on in Europe in, shall we say, military confrontation uh, or, in fact, conflict in Greece in the late 1940s. Following from your last comments, uh, do you um, agree with those historians who posit that the Cold War, at least from the um, Western perspective, became militarized as a result of the Korean War? I certainly think that American hesitation about the commitment of its own troops was very much accelerated by Korea. Of course, America had taken over the military support of Greece and Turkey from an increasingly bankrupt Britain uh, from 47 onwards. Uh, but I think it's the Korean War that, yes, uh, is an important trigger, although, I mean, NATO was obviously negotiated in 1949, and in many senses, the presence of American occupation forces in Austria and West Germany uh, was a deterrent to the Soviet advance. But the um, Stalin's active um, encouragement of the North Koreans to invade South Korea um, helped to force the Americans to decide whether they were going to confront the deteriorating situation in East Asia. How, if at all, was the Cold War changed or indeed made possible by virtue of the fact of uh, the atomic bomb? Well, the atomic bomb ended, added a new element of confrontation once the Soviets developed and weaponized one. Of course, the atomic bomb existed with an American monopoly of it from 1945 to 1949, and that didn't prevent the largest single success for the uh, communists, which was the defeat of the Kuomintang in China. So having the nuclear bomb didn't itself predicate, didn't itself mean that one was going to succeed. Once both powers had the atomic bomb, you have complicated equations begin to play their role in terms of deterrence, in terms of pre preventive attack, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but the atomic bomb doesn't prevent the possibility of a larger conflict. Um, um, and I think one can go further than that. Uh, had the Soviets attacked, um, as they certainly on a number of occasions were actively prepared to do, uh, most recently probably in 1983, then the idea that one could have fought a sub-nuclear war or a nuclear war simply with tactical weapons, I think would have been naive. I think it would have gone full-scale full scale thermonuclear pretty quickly.
How did the succession to power of Nikita Khrushchev change the dynamics of the Cold War? I think the, I mean, Khrushchev's famous joke about Stalin um, was that Stalin kept the anti-aircraft batteries around Moscow ready on 24-hour notice for imminent attack. Um, I think Khrushchev was, um, he was more wary of the idea of a full-scale struggle. He was aware of the idea that the Soviet Union needed to provide, um, as it were, inducements to the working class in order for them to back uh, communism or back it with greater enthusiasm, which meant that he wanted to develop uh, consumer industries. Now, what that does not mean is that he was therefore necessarily benign, but it means he was more benign than Stalin. I mean, he was very interested in, as it were, leapfrogging Western containment and developing the Soviet Union's alliances uh, with Egypt, of course, with Cuba. Um, and from that point of view, a, he, he was playing a longer hand in the Cold War than um, the notion of a rapid uh, military attempt to solve it. Uh, how does one factor in the, in the Cold War matrix colonial conflicts like those in Indochina and Algeria, among other places? Well, cl um, colonial insurrections both had their own independent um, origins and courses, but they also were weaponized in Cold War terms because uh, foreign powers intervened, most prominently the Soviet Union. China was also quite important and by the uh, 1970s, but most prominently the Soviet Union because it saw these as a way to both weaken Western powers that were its opponents and also to win support in the third world. Um, initially, the Americans were somewhat blasé about the situation because they assumed that independent third world countries would wish to be democratic, capitalist and pro-American, um, so that, for example, their policy on Egypt and on Algeria were not those of the British or French governments. Um, but they changed, the Americans changed their, their stance and, of course, then started actively to support, um, uh, for example, uh, Portugal uh, received American support in its struggle in its African colonies against Soviet and Chinese-backed uh, insurrectionary movements. Um, and also the Americans, um, as it were, supported post-colonial governments, so we say President Mobutu in Congo, which were in some respects, um, one has to be careful here what phraseology one uses, but were in some respects neo-colonial. In other words, Belgian interests remained very significant in, uh, in Congo. Uh, how do you uh, periodize the Cold War? Some historians posit that there was a Cold War I up to the mid-1950s, and then subsequently there was a Cold War II um, and up to the mid-1970s. Uh, then there was a new Cold War beginning in the late 1970s up to 1989, 1990. 
Well, for me, just because I like to try and think outside the box, Cold War One is the period from 1917 to 1941. Cold War Two is the period from the late 40s to the Sino-Soviet breach in the mid-1960s. Cold War Three is the rest of the period of, that is called the Cold War, because in that period, the Soviet Union had as much to be mindful of the possibility of conflict with China as it did with the United States. So I'm not, you know, what I'm trying to do, I've tried to do this in a number of books, and, you know, I'm very happy for people to disagree with me, but I do think one has to put question marks against the standard narratives because they're so often repeated without thought. I do not see things like, for example, Helsinki or détente or Ostpolitik uh, or the kind of issues that tend to really agitate scholars in Europe. I don't see those as particularly significant if you're looking at the Cold War from the perspective of Beijing or Tokyo or Canberra. And how, if at all, were the dynamics of the Cold War changed by the Sino-Soviet split? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Not just militarily, but also politically. Now, I think they also, they are significant, not obviously for Chinese policy, but they're also significant for Soviet policy. They're significant for American assumptions um, and they create a scenario which lasted essentially till the 2000s. And I think this is the interesting thing, that rather than thinking of 1989 as a discontinuity in geopolitical terms, I think you could think of a period of essential continuity from point one, uh, which is the Chinese exploiting the Americans, the Americans exploiting the Sino-Soviet pact, both sides exploiting each other for their own interests, which uh, creates this effective entente between America and the United States, so that, sorry, America and China, so that by the end of the 1970s, the Chinese are fighting the Vietnamese instead of the Americans. And I would say that that essential alignment continues until the 2000s, and the real problem for the West in the 2000s was not, though it was a serious one, the overcommitment of Western forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. No, that was, as I've said, serious. But the real problem was the uh, geopolitical realignment between China and Russia, uh, which weakened both those who were concerned about China and those who were concerned about Russia, and also destabilized the idea that a new world order had been created around essentially uh, Western liberal values. How did the relative decline in American power from uh, the mid to late 1960s up to uh, 1980 impact in any way the Cold War? I think the key element um, was not so much a decline of economic power, although, as you know, um, America essentially went off the gold standard and American growth rates declined. I think the key problem uh, was a failure of political resolution. And in part, I think that this is due to the, if you like, naivety that had underlay the uh, Vietnam commitment. Um, sending full-scale military commitment 
forces in is not generally the best way to pursue your interests. And if you're looking at Southeast Asia in the 1960s, the great American successes in Indonesia, where um, the anti-Western nationalists plus the communists are both thrashed and you get in a very unattractive and corrupt but pro-Western cabal of generals who essentially rule in Western interests and in their own interests with you know, a, a minimal American military commitment. Um, and the contrast between that, which was well-managed, and the um, disaster of sending over half a million troops to Vietnam is, I think, a very interesting one. And you get you know, the same thing quite obviously um, in the 2000s, it was a disastrous decision to take over um, Iraq and um, Afghanistan. And um, so I think that in, a, in many senses, the fault and flaw for the Americans is having made a, and let me make this clear, other powers make terrible mistakes. I'm not making this to be uniquely critical of the United States. Having made a really serious policy blunder in the 60s, they then reverse it by becoming overly cautious about sending military aid short of troops. So they cut off the financing to the South Vietnamese army in 1975. They don't provide the uh, support to anti-communist forces um, in Angola, in, uh, uh, in the Horn of Africa, and in many senses, they become too cautious. But that's not because America was poor. I mean, American military expenditure in 1975 is not nothing. It is because of the priorities that have been embraced in response to the Vietnam failure. Uh, was the um, apparent resurgence in American power in the 1980s was that uh, something real, or is it mostly a matter of atmospherics? Well, in the 1980s, you have a situation in which the um, growth rates of the long boom that had been seen from World War II to the early 70s are not matched. But in terms of the major powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States is economically and fiscally more successful, much more innovative than the Soviet Union. And that puts significant strain on the Soviets, as well as a sense of relative failure. But at the same time, a key element in the United States is the robustness of leadership. And one might make the same point about um, Britain under Margaret Thatcher. And you could easily envisage a scenario in the United States in the 80s in which irrespective of the economic performance, um, different political leadership would have, as it were, acted to consolidate or to help the consolidation of um, the uh, Soviet bloc, either because it didn't want to see instability or because it focused on domestic matters and, let us say, left its major 
foreign policy line to West Germany, which um, was in many senses quite happy to sort of appease East Germany. Um, so I think one's got to actually say the political choices of individuals, and the key one here is Ronald Reagan, but I think Margaret Thatcher is important. I think the attitude of the Pope, John Paul II, who was a very much a committed anti-communist, I think his attitude was also very important and significant. Um, so I think these roles of individuals were important. And of course, on the side of the um, Soviet Union, the Gorbachev, initially he was not... Um, uh, going in any way to uh, to accept that the Soviet Union became weaker, uh, he did uh, he did eventually change his policies towards a commitment to a disengagement, uh, which in fact weakened the Soviet Union and became its manifestation. And the last point here about political choices is that, of course, a key element again, not at the same level as the Soviets and the Americans, but at a secondary level is that of China, because in China, both in the 80s and in the 90s, the post-Maoist governments, whilst remaining determined to see the party, the Communist Party, maintain a monopoly of power, were nevertheless also very keen to maintain a um, pro-American alignment. With, uh, what, um, with uh, what occurred in 1989, 1990, in Central and Eastern Europe, how was how predictable was that? It was the course of what occurred in 1989 and 1990 was not predictable. And indeed, the omens had not been good. And the Solidarity Movement in Poland in 1981 was crushed by the Polish army and security forces, uh, in part at the behest of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so that was not a good omen for later in the decade. Um, but the interesting uh, role of contingency comes into play here, that both the uh, attitudes of the Soviet political leadership um, and the attitudes of the key Western players interact. The most important of all is the attitude of the Soviet leadership. And again, as you know, I've written a book on counterfactuals and the obvious counterfactual, alternative facts, the obvious counterfactual here is to contrast, shall we say, Berlin in or East Berlin in 1989 and Beijing in 1989, because in Beijing, uh, the army acted at the behest of the party and killed the demonstrators and suppressed them. And um, in in 1989, there was not a similar use of the military, um, and the only place where the military really acted significantly was in Romania, and that was against the security services, uh, and in therefore, in other words, facilitate, facilitating the change of government. Would it be said that the United States won the Cold War, or would it be the case that the, merely the Soviet Union lost it, and if so, why? Well, as you know, there is a tradition, I mean, there's a book by LeBeau saying that nobody won the Cold War. Well, again, as I said, if your perspective is Warsaw or Tallinn or Riga, you will know that that is an absurdity. 
Um, if you've been and you've visited any of the, uh, I, I remember going to the Stasi headquarters in uh, in Rostock, where you can go and see the the uh, cells in which people were deliberately driven insane. So yes, uh, quite clearly the West did win the Cold War. It, like most victories, it did. It was a, a messy victory. Uh, like most victories, it led uh, to a degree in which some of the people in the old order who should have been, quite frankly, pushed to a side were compromised with. Um, to a degree, sometimes what came afterwards was not always desirable. Um, far right wing movements in a number of places. Um, but one only needs to see the current tyranny in China to realize, one party tyranny there, to realize how um, the West did win the Cold War in those areas where communism was banished. Um, and the very fact that, uh, as it were, we can have this conversation without fearing that we're being stuck on the list of some uh, Soviet intelligence agency uh, indicates that um, possibly how we should look at this. Would you attribute agency in terms of the outcome of the Cold War to the um, decline, precipitous decline at a certain point in 1986 of raw materials? You mean the decline in the prices of oil and such like? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I certainly think that um, Soviet public finances, fiscalism and the economy were all under really serious problems in the 1980s. Um, and indeed also that the way in which, because of the attraction of the American public finances, as it were, free money in the world, was investing in dollar-backed securities rather than being interested in being uh, investing in uh, the Soviet bloc, the major exception there being, of course, the Germans. Um, but, West Germans. But what I would say is, no, it's much more complicated than this. I think that there is also a growing um, crisis among the... I mean, the working class had had virtually no interest in the communist mess for a very long time. They'd realized that behind the rhetoric, uh, behind the garbage of you know it all being better, they realized that the reality was grayness, uh, rationing, uh, limited, ex limited expectations. Um, so that hadn't really contacted with them particularly well. What it, what it, uh, where it had worked was, of course, for middle-class elites who, same middle-class elites you see in the public sectors in the West, for whom this had provided sort of, as long as they mailed to the right platitudes, it had provided jobs in a party machinery, in government agencies, etc., etc. But I think those groups were increasingly aware in the 80s that the situation wasn't working. And in a way, Gorbachev was their representative and Gorbachev, in, ter in trying to improve and reform, as it were, um, Soviet communism, very much was speaking to their agenda. But that agenda was a fundamentally flawed one, because like most um, anti-capitalists, these people just simply did not understand how economies worked. 
If you wanted people to take one thing away from our discussion, what would it be? Well, I'd like them to read my book on the Cold War because I think it would help them to see it much more as a uh, process that begins in 1917 and has a very significant Asian dimension. But if I could add one other thing, we haven't really sufficiently talked about the cultural and intellectual side. And to my mind, that side is still with us today. In other words, I actually see much of the current political culture wars dimension as reiterations of many of the same debates, issues, divisions, and groupings that one saw during the Cold War. With that observation, which I would like to agree with, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to another episode of Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.